Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. Today we're going to interview Kev Gay. Now Kev, I've worked with uh, for a number of years, and he's a good mate of mine, but he's got a really, really interesting life, worked within the police service, and now he runs a charity. Good morning, Kev. Good morning, Paul. Lovely to see you again. Good to see you, mate. The weather could have been a bit kinder for us, but hopefully we'll be warm enough in here today. So, Kev, we've both been in the police. We've both served Essex Police for some time. What year did you join? I joined in 1988. 88. Yeah, I, I went in December 86. I went in a strange time. Harlow boy, born and bred or? No, I was actually born in Stoke Newington in London. Oh. We moved out of there when I was five, moved over to Harlow. Um, and then from then on, yeah, Harlow. So that explains the Arsenal. <laughs> yes, connection. Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Um, so you moved to Harlow. You do all your education in Harlow. How old were you when you joined the police? I was 20. Yeah. A kid. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's surprising really when you when you look back. Yes, you were a kid. It's it's funny, isn't it? Cuz I was I was 21. And I remember going to a domestic and the old boy there's probably dead now and I'm telling him how to lead his life, but I didn't know I didn't know what a relationship was. A relationship was somebody that I'd been out with more than 3 weeks. That was yep. and this is a bloke where I'm telling all sorts of things, but I didn't know whether his mortgage. I didn't understand at that time. So, but it's a great time of life to join. Oh, absolutely! And from my point of view, people turn around and say, "Would you do it all again if you had the opportunity?" And I, no qualms. Yes, I would. Yes, yeah, I would so do would I. exactly. Yeah. So, so would I. And there are some things I change, um, but some people I change. But in the main, yeah, of course, I would, I would do it again. So you joined the police. Where did you go to when you first joined? So bearing in mind I'd lived in Harlow. They moved me to Southend, um, which, to be fair, I loved. You know, for a young lad, I was at that time in a relationship with, the, with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. Right. So it's quite a serious relationship. But, yeah, um, moved me to Southend in lodgings. But what a life, you know, a 20-year-old, oh. send you to the South End. And I think anyone who's living in, listening to this now who hasn't had the benefit of working within the police, living in lodgings, being part of a big shift and a big team, it was, it was great, wasn't it? Because when you walked in there, certainly at South End at the time, they're big, big shifts, you'd be given the teapot. You were the, you were the probationer and the last probationer would be absolutely delighted to see you because they can stop making the tea for everybody. Yes, and that changed. So going through my career, it changed, and what a shame. Oh. Because actually that was – they were amazing times. The camaraderie was second to none. Um, tea and toast in the morning, every morning, yep. um, was tradition. And as you say, the, the probationers made the tea. They did the toast. Um, what a waste and what a shame that it's gone. And that was part of your acceptance into the team, wasn't it? You, you, if you took part in that, then they knew that 
you had their back. You were there to support them. If you, yeah, we'd all moan about it, but actually it was that was part of it. And you couldn't wait for the next probationer to come and join the yep. shift. That was your bonding. Yeah, you it know, was. And it's, uh, you needed that. You know. You're at Southend for how long? So I was at Southend uh, only for a couple of years. So I think three years I did my probation there. Um, and I think this goes back to the Harlow, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, was still in Harlow. So it was a bit of a, an escape um, to try and get out of the south of the county, which wasn't easy at that point. No. Um, so Stansted Airport came up. Stansted Airport. Stansted Airport. When it was in the old side of Stansted Airport, while they were still building the new terminal, but that came up, um, there was firearms involved, which hence, you know, I carried through my career. Um, but yeah, that that was my next stage. So I moved from South End over to Stansted Airport, and it couldn't have been more different. No EasyJet, no Ryanair at Stansted at that time. No. And what year was this? That would have been 1991. 91. So the new terminal, as we call it, is just being built. Yep. It's a building I, I, site, most of it. Yeah. Yes. The old the old terminal, when I was a kid, I mean, I <laughs> flew from there when I was really small. My dad was stationed out in Germany. That was all, almost not a porter cabin, but a tiny, <laughs> tiny building, which had increased over the years. Yeah. But it's still small. How did you feel at that time? You, you're now 23. Mm-hmm. They're giving you a gun, Kevin. Yep. How how did that make you feel? You've, you've had to go through the assessments, I assume. What was yep. that like? I mean, from the point of... I didn't go to Stansted Airport to be a firearms officer. Right. I went to Stansted Airport for the the ability to move from the south of the county to the north of the county. The firearms part was an added bonus, and it was an added bonus. Um I'd been interested in the military when I was younger and wanted to go into actually the Royal Marines. So that was a, a, a real um, passion of mine. So actually to have a firearms course, albeit still young, um, that was exciting. It was exciting. Um, it was something I wanted to do, lots of responsibility. Um, you know, it's not something to be toyed with, but yeah, that's uh, that sort of started me on my firearms career. And what weapons did you train on at that time? At the time, they had the um, Berettas, so the 92F Berettas, um, and I believe uh, the the MP5s, so they had the MP5s then. Just coming in, I would imagine. Yes, yeah. I, I, I never carried a gun. Okay. I, I, I couldn't be trusted with a pen sometimes, <laughs> so to be, to be given a gun would be, um, that could be quite dangerous, although <laughs> I've got guns, but that, that's um, shotguns, let me just get that out there. But yeah, I'm not. I've never sort of been into firearms as such. You're at Stansted Airport. Were there any major incidents? Because we went through a spate of having hijacks. Did any of that happen whilst you were there? So when we moved over to the the, um, the main terminal, which happened about a year afterwards, so it was it was only a, um, a quick transition. Um, I think my time in firearms, there were only two hijackings. When you say um, only two, Kevin, when I say only. <laughs> The thing was, Stansted Airport is the hijack airport for the for the UK. So um, that's the one that's got the licence. If any hijacked air, airplane comes in to UK airspace, that's where it, it basically goes. They've yeah. got the space and they've got the training and they've got the facilities. Um, so when I say only, yeah, it's a strange thing to say. But I was involved in one of them. 
um, sort of briefly, just on sort of the periphery. Um, but the the second one where I found out my team actually made the approach to the aircraft, went onto the aircraft, I was watching that from uh, a fisherman's hut in Yorkshire. <laughs> I was out on holiday, made the, the assumption, actually I, I knew it was going on, my shift were on that day. I knew my shift were on that day. And that was a disappointment, I've got to be honest. Yeah, I bet. That was a disappointment. The, the thing is, there's a lot of preparation that goes into uh, fantastic preparation with, and it's no secret, but special forces and everybody else. And, and it's a well-trodden path when it comes to the training element. But to put it into practice, thank goodness we don't have to put it into practice very often. But... There are so many people within that jigsaw puzzle that get involved. It's absolutely, it's brilliant. I mean, I've done the training stuff. I've never been. I was on the on the back of of one, just doing some statement reading. But it is it's a, a well oiled machine when it comes down to it. Yeah, from the start to finish, from planning, preparation, you know, the the operation itself, and then obviously afterwards the debriefs and and all the other sort of infrastructure that's in place. It is a well well oiled machine. Needs to be. Um, with some really professional people involved. Yeah. I remember when the Sudanese one came in, I think it was Sudanese, they couldn't let the aircraft leave the UK because it wasn't airworthy. I mean, they yep. put people, people's lives at significant risk just by flying on that yep. aircraft without being hijacked. Three years, did you say, at Stansted Airport? Yes. Um, and then there's natural progressions. If you're going to stay in the firearms world, um, there's natural progressions. The force support unit, which is where I, I went to, um, in my opinion, was the pinnacle of, you know, that's yeah. what you, you, you went for. Um, and that's what I strive towards. So, you know, that, that's, that was my goal. Um, and I realised my goal as well. So I went off to the force support unit, which was brilliant. Um, it was either that or the, the armed response vehicles. So you went out onto the armed response vehicles. But at the time... There were only two garages. One was south, one was north, and it was nowhere near where I lived. No. So it sort of didn't make sense. The FSU was the, was the natural progression. Yeah. So for anybody listening, the force support unit, um, it's a, a battalion, I suppose, a small army of, of, of men and women who are trained in a number of different areas, firearms, public order, surveillance, method of entry, but it's all high level. It's not... They will do the local stuff, but it's all very strategic. The, the, the kinds of things that they get involved in is very strategic. And dare I say it, from a jealousy perspective, there are, you know the camaraderie is second to none in the in the forces. Certainly was, absolutely. That's I mean, in the camaraderie within the police. You know, I suppose in our times was probably second to none, and that was the next level. It, yeah, it really was. was. I mean, you know, you really had each other's back. You supported each other through, you know, thick and thin. Um, and that, that was really important, really important. And I think that, I mean, the, the, thick, the thick stuff, the, 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 there's some really good things, great deployments, and you'll always remember the great deployments, but the, the sadness, and I remember people passing away who were members of the support unit whilst you were there, you know, yep. and there is still a, a memorial wall there was when we, when we retired of the pictures of these great people who they had your back 24-7. Yep. What, how does that impact when you – I've lost colleagues and I, I can explain it, but when you lose colleagues that you work so closely with and you, you trust, what's the impact on the overall team? 
I think from I think that's the bonus of having the overall team. Um, very good friend of mine um, died, and he was very young. Um, and we came together as a shift. That was I think that was our saving grace. We came together as a shift. We actually arranged um, to go to the police headquarters bar together, all together, all to have a drink. You know, we wasn't getting madly drunk. It was just that we were together. Um, and that was important. I think that makes it easier in a way. Yeah. Um, that, you you know, you do have each other's back. It's that, that is that bonding. It is, it draws you closer together as well. Yeah. And I, I, I recall the divers, um, yes. the day they died, they were support unit, um, members of support unit. They, they came out up under a, a vessel in Dobbs Weir, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And they um, passed away at the scene. And I remember how grief-stricken the, the entire force were, but the support unit in particular. But the bonding as a team was just unbelievable. I I hope, one, I hope that it doesn't happen and people don't die in, in service, etc. but it, they will. But I hope that they still have that bond and I hope that they still have that camaraderie within the police and within the support unit in particular. What's the highlight of being on, on the support unit? How did you, what would you say was the best part, apart from the big guns and the flashy cars? Well, from, I mean, from that point of view, it, it was so diverse. It was so diverse on the support unit. Um, we did all the public, the, the big public order deployments. Um, we did all the firearms deployments, surveillance, as you say, method of entry I was involved in. I was a rifle officer as well, so there was another level of like the, the, the firearms activities that we got involved in. Um, I can't think, I mean, we did all the major um, sort of murders and major crimes. We always got involved in those because, again, we could deploy a, a big team of people that, yeah. that just all work together. Um, I haven't got, that I can think of at this moment in time, a, a single point. There were just many, many um, fascinating times um, that I was proud to be part of. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's, it is a club. The support unit is a club. And we've got some really good friends who have been sergeants, constables, sergeants, gone all the way through the chief superintendents on there. And they're still part of that club. They're still part of the FSU team. Yep. I wow. mean, there's still Facebook. there's still a Facebook page for that. Um, is there? Yep. So there's, uh, you know, the old guys and girls still post things, still asking questions, um, and the club is still running. Yeah. It's still there. That's brilliant. My uncle was on there in the uh, mid-'70s when it basically first started. He went on there mid-'70s, and he was involved. Um, there was a chase, I think a chap called Paul Howe, I think, was chased up to Ramsey, and there was a, a discharge of a firearm, and he was shot. He, he pointed the gun at uh, Frank Ruggles, who's who's now passed away. It's a, it's a great, as as you said, the, the police service in itself is a, is a great club, and I, I hope that they're enjoying it as much as we did. How long did you serve on the support unit? So I was there um, ten years. So I, I um, was on there for ten years. With the caveat, I sort of moved over to weapons training, which was. Not a side, um, side. It was a sideways move as such, 
because um, they were part of the firearms team still. So I sort of moved over there after 10 years. Um, I think I did about six months to a year where I was going over there on regular occasions just as a transition Yeah. Um, before I moved over there permanently. So, yeah, 10 years on the FSU and then sort of moved across to um, weapons training, which... When you did your rifle course, where did you have to go f- for that? Where did you? Where would you do your rifle course? So a lot of a lot of the training was down in Lid and High, I think down in Kent. Oh, where we used to do the public order yep. training. Yep, down so down at the military ranges that are down on yep. the on the coast. Um, Yorkshire, we used to use quite a lot for the the uh, the courses because then you could you had a a very different sort of. Um, Sort of geography, yeah. Weather conditions, and that was all you know, really key to um, to to training you how to work with weather, work with winds, different um, sort of geography areas and things like that. So that was good. Up at Wakefield, a lot of the time we used to go up to. Um, used to stay at Wakefield Police Headquarters. Yeah, mm. many memorable occasions up there. Did you get deployed very often as, as a rifleman? Would you have to go? Uh, or was that something that was a, a bolt-on to a deployment? It was a bolt-on. Um, so within the team, you tended to have other specialisms that people took. So you'd only probably have two or three rifle officers on, on each shift. So firearms, uh, if there was a firearms deployment and there was some um, some distance involved, they would bring fire, uh, the rifle officers in, in for that. Um they were very good at, you know, that sort of the surveillance side of things as well. Just watching, reporting on things that are going on, yeah. you know, because they had the, you know, the 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 optics, the the higher level optics. Um, so they used them for that as well. Were you a crop as well? Did you? Do- I would. I did do the crops. So the yeah the. That's a that's a a, a covert policing ta- tactic where Kevin and his colleagues would dig himself into a hedge somewhere <laughs> and defecate or urinate into a bag and <laughs> store it for about three days before they could come out. It's, and it, that's another fascinating part. And to have, and I've seen the, the footage where you've got criminals literally walking within feet of you. That's another fascinating part of what the police service do. Pe- people think that the police are one dimensional. It's all about arrest. It's all about, but actually there's so many parts to this machine. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And, and a lot of that is evidence, evidence gathering. You know, that's the side yeah. that you the, that you never see. Um, they supply the evidence for, you know, the major teams, the major crime teams that, yeah. that you worked on, um, sort of gave them that additional evidence in relation to to um, some of those more covert things that were going on. Yeah, absolutely. And if we go back, um, there was a, an officer, a crop officer, who was murdered by Kenneth Noy. It just shows how dangerous it is to undertake that as a as a practice you know as, as a part of your business it's very very dangerous and quite thrilling it must be when you see the suspect and they're walking towards you you just think i hope they don't see me or hear me because it's all over quite quickly yes and i suppose you know if you ever asked um when was the most frightening time that was exactly it was one of those um times when we were in a um a covert hide and we had exactly that, you know, can they see us? You always think the worst that they can. What are your options going to be? And that's always part of your planning and preparation anyway. You always have those options, um, but it doesn't make it any easier. No. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that's quite scary. But in another way, it's, it's scary, but uh, yeah, adrenaline 
Oh, you know, the yeah, adrenaline is, is, is massive around that. Absolutely. At the end of your time on the support unit, 10 years, so you've now got 13 years in the police, mm-hmm. what did you do next? So I moved over to weapons training. Right. So became a, um, a weapons trainer, so you have to do a trainer's course. Um, and again, teaching all the aspects. So because I was a rifle officer, um, I used to t- teach rifle um, as well, took courses, took the courses. Um, then t- t- um, Taser came in as well. Of course, yeah. So we had a lot of that training going on. So all the basic courses, all the um, we used to have m- monthly um, training courses on the ranges or um, they were doing tactics training. So all of that had to be planned. And that was uh, absolutely, that was hard work, unusual hard work because you are planning for the um for the training you put everything in into that you know from when they get their food when they get there how they're going to get there that's tough that's quite tough but there's another side to it kev and and you're training people to use lethal force Mm -hmm. should the need arise Mm -hmm. and if somebody gets shot if a member of the public gets shot a criminal gets shot one of the first things they look at is the training that they've undertaken. Yeah. How did that make it? So let's take you back to the support unit and you're deployed with a firearm. How did you feel when you're deployed? you think, if I've got to shoot that suspect, how did you feel about the support or potential support? What was, what was in place for you at that time? I suppose it, that's a difficult one. It is a difficult one. Yes, we, all, we often thought about it. Um, you know that we hadn't had a police shooting in this county for many, many years prior. You know, prior to um, me joining the the force support unit, um, so they were very rare, very rare. But we saw the Metropolitan Police Service getting involved in those, yeah. saw the shootings, saw the aftermath, um, and it was a worry. But it was one of those things that you took the responsibility for, um, and just got on with it. Yes. I felt relatively supported, but there was also elements of investigations that we saw that were very unfair. Oh, absolutely. You know, that officers were, were treated potentially like criminals um, until such time that they were proved innocent. And that, that tended to be, you know, the, the way that certainly we perceived it. Yeah. Um, so it was difficult in that respect, but actually I would never have given it up. It's interesting because I'm going to interview somebody who actually shot someone in the line of duty and then stood trial for, for wow. the murder. Can you imagine the, emo- no. the emotions? <laughs> you can't, can you? No. You, you think you've done, you're doing everything at that time for Queen and Country to support the safety of the public and next thing you know, you're gripping the rail at the old baby. Mm. He was acquitted and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But the... The support there are there are two factions within the police service. You've got the supporting side, and then you've got the condemning side. Mm-hmm. Certainly now, and I think that the the last time that a shot was fired was probably when Bill Bishop was sadly killed. Yes, nineteen eighty four. You finished your weapons training. Yep. What happens next? Well, that was a good question. You know, I. What did happen next? Where where was I willing to go? I'd spent best part of 13 years plus as a firearms officer um, doing all the major things. So the force support unit were involved in pretty much anything and everything that the force 
uh, were involved in. So it was, what do I do next? Um, so I decided to go down the promotion route. I didn't want to go back to, and there's no disrespect, I, but I just didn't want to go back to being a beat, body, a beat bobby, you know, go back to division um, because I felt that I just had too much to give. There's yeah. too much that you lose experience and knowledge-wise. Um, so I decided to go down the um, promotion route. And what year was that? Wow, so that was that would have been 1990, I mean, 2008. 2008, I, I was promoted to sergeant. Um, and interestingly, what, what the police often do, um, albeit you've got that knowledge and that experience, uh, what they'll often do is send you back to division. Yeah. You know, you go back to your roots um, and actually – one of the best things I ever did. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed it as a sergeant. I don't think I'd have coped as a constable again um, with all the, the pressures that were there. But as a sergeant, you had an element of control. Yeah. Um, but I went into neighbourhood policing. Um, as a sergeant, I, I, I sort of, again, spanned lots of areas. Um, got involved in some of the proactive teams. Um, some of the development teams. I was on the, the police development unit, which developed probationers coming yep. through. And that just came from, you know, my, I suppose, my experience, my knowledge, and actually my, um, my, I wanted to help others understand, you know, the, the greater things within and the where was that? So I, I, I went back to all over the west of Essex, basically. Okay. So I initially went back to Loughton. Uh, I worked at Waltham Abbey, Epping, um, Ongar for a short time, Harlow, uh, Brentwood. So, yeah, I think I, I sort of spanned all the different areas and in the West of Essex. And all but one of those have now gone in their, in their true yes. form. It's only Harlow out of that list that actually survived as a police station, yes. and that's nine till five now. Yep. It's a great shame. I, I, I think about when... When Essex took over from the Met, Loughton, Waltham Abbey, they had 60 officers yep. that covered that area, mm. a full custody suite. Yep. I think they even kept the horses at Waltham Abbey for a period of time. I got promoted to Harlow in 2007, and I was in a similar situation. I was on major crime. I'd been there for seven years, and the reason I took promotion is because somebody else was telling me what to do who hadn't got promotion. And I didn't want to do disclosure anymore. Yep. I, I wanted to give them the opportunity to do the disclosure rather than keep, and that's why I took it. And a, a, a mutual friend of ours who ended up as a chief superintendent on the support unit or uh, MSD, uh, I phoned him up and said, uh, I'd like to go be a detective sergeant. And he said, no chance, you're going back. If you come and work for me, come and work for me, boy, you're going to be a sergeant on uniform. So I thought, well, I'm not doing that. So I spoke to Ivor Harvey, and a job came up at Harlow. I went there as a DS, and that's that's how I how I started there. But um, you've you've done your, your your time there, and I know that we we worked together on on a couple of jobs. But you have always been into your public order, your, your and and that side of policing. I enjoyed it immensely working with the likes of yourself. But you got to do some really interesting things. I mean, you went to the G. Was it G8 or...? The G Two G8s I did. Um, one in Scotland at Glen Eagles. That was when I was a 
firearms. Um, I was a weapons trainer at the time. Okay. So I went up there as a firearms officer. Um, flown up there? No. Oh, loads of people no, got no. flown, didn't they? There was. Yeah. No, we we was we were bussed up there on the um, the old support unit vehicles. With a mobile gun safe, I assume. Yes. Yeah, we used to. A, a lot of that was yeah was put into um, like a blue um, van, a plain blue van. Really. Put all the guns in there, and off we went. So you yep. bust up there. What was that like working for, doing a mutual aid in in Scotland? Because they've got different rules to us as well. They had. They, I mean, they had to give us some sort of local training around some of their the the, the laws. Obviously, that the, you've got to abide by and what you can do. There's certain things you can do up there, certain things you can't. Um, so, yes, they had to do some local training. Um, so that was part of the deployment as well. Luckily, I was on the firearm side, so uh, we were actually um, resourcing the, the um, armoury. Oh, okay. So I actually had quite a cushy, uh, sort of cushy um, <laughs> deployment up there. telling everybody listening how tough it was and you were sleeping in a, in a bivvy <laughs> somewhere and uh, had to catch your own food. We were down on nights. Um, so we did the like, 12-hour night shift uh, running the armories, but obviously the teams were coming in and out uh, regularly. And so, it, yeah, it was a cushy deployment in a way. Um, probably disappointing because you're, you're seeing some of the things that were going on up there and not being involved. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that, that wasn't easy from that point of view. It was an easy deployment, but um, I'd like to have been involved a little bit more bit more operational but, stuff you know it, as you said earlier it's it's the whole process the whole process has to work the whole machine has to yeah. be there and you've got to be part of that machine in some way yeah and one person can't do it on their own no despite what some of the chief officers of course. think <laughs> you also went to northern ireland now i think that's the only time that british police english police scottish welsh police have been deployed into northern ireland mm-hmm. What was that like? And and sorry, I'll double question here. That was in response to the concerns around the Orange Day parades. They were. Is it twelfth of July? I don't know the exact, but yes, it's the yeah, it's the the annual Orange Day parades, parades. that they, they do. And, and what was that like? That was probably one of the most exciting deployments I've had. Very political. Um, I was over. I was actually a sergeant at the time, but um, I was. Um, promoted um, to an inspector. I was an acting inspector over there, so I was actually a unit commander. Um, so you very... had twenty-one people working for you. Three, three buses. Well, or... they didn't. They don't use buses over there, so we had to deploy as the um, PSNI deploy. Right. So okay. they deploy out in um, armoured Land Rovers. Right. Um, so obviously, you haven't got a a van load of people, so you're all in the back of a, an armoured Land Rover. You have to have armed support as well within that as well uh, because obviously the, the risks that are out there. So a very, very different deployment. Um, we had to do some training around that because they use water cannons. They At the time, they um, would use the um, the rubber bullets. So yeah. you, know, you had to deploy with them. That was quite common. But they had live firearms on the line as well. Wow. So there were certain things... Um, within you know that training, that actually if something happened, um, that you were trained to do, and the armed officers then took over, so you sort of took cover because you're you know you're you're there for public order. You haven't got all the 
um, the necessary equipment, things like that. So yeah, that part of that training was you need to take cover, and then the the armed contingent comes in, and you're working hand in glove with them. Fascinating. That was a very political, very very strange place to work. Um, and it got lively, didn't it? I mean, the, mm. you, you'd see it on the news and the petrol bombs coming in. And and I suppose you have to have a certain level of tolerance because it's already escalated, but you don't want it to go any further. No. It's, so, as I say, very political deployment. We were held in uh, reserve for, long, long, for days, basically. Um, but it got to a point where they had to deploy them. They didn't want to because it was that English police on yeah. um, very... You know, it was very difficult politically, uh, but we did get deployed, um, and my unit actually got deployed to the front of um, one of the sort of the the active days. Uh, we were petrol bombed, live petrol bombed. We do it in training, yeah, but we were live petrol bombed, rocks, bricks, everything was thrown at us. Um, water cannons were deployed over the top of us, so we were we were absolutely in the, in the mix. Um, and, you know, you don't think about it like this, but, again, what an adrenaline rush. Oh, we come yeah. away from that as a team. Um, and I was working with people that weren't from Essex. They were from all over. Um, so very different sort of dynamics. Um, but we came away from that. And, again, the bond that you feel because you've been involved in something like that, um, you probably would never forget. I, oh, Absolutely. Did you do with them? Did you did you get deployed on up with them the the London riots? Yes, I mean on a yeah on occasions so we the, did those nighttime cover yes. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, I remember going there and it was fine. We just got a, 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 I had three buses and I had great people working with me, Lee Deval and some really you know experienced people. Yes. And then we got deployed to Brixton because somebody <laughs> believe it or not, there's a gun shop in Brixton, and the mood went from friendly but firm policing to this is all going to go horribly wrong now yes and it is it is you you feel feel the mood change when the blue light goes on and you start to your driver goes a bit faster you can feel everybody become a bit more somber but uh, yeah like you say it's fascinating and and your adrenaline just it keeps you going and the training oh yeah I, i think at that point you know you just you go into that that trained mode that that experiential learning um, and the interesting thing is, Kev, the, the the training element. There are different personalities on on a bus, on a vehicle, and you're not going to get on well with everybody. You no. can't possibly. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that you know exactly why you are there, and you work as a professional, responsible body of people. Definitely. And you watch each other's back. You have to because you and you have to trust those people around you because otherwise. It could go horribly wrong. And it's yeah. one thing training at lid, but it's another thing when people are actually throwing proper bricks at you. Yes. And then, you know, giving it large, or you, you've got a burnt out vehicle next to you, which is still smouldering, and you think a bit more petrol on that, yep. and we're all going up. It's, it, is, it is an interesting dilemma. 2000, and what year did we get up to? Where were we? So you're. You're doing all the stuff in the Epping Forest and the west of the LPA, or division as it was then. What then changes, Kev? What what changes for Kev? Um, so I I actually went on to so the the force sort of reinvented what was called the operational support group. It was a bit like a 
public order force support unit. Yeah. So all they did, say all, um, they were a public order unit. They were um, fast road trains. So there was lots of uh, things that they did. Um, out did they on the, the interceptors the major roads. part of those at one point? Yes, they were. So they, they, they became, so a lot of the interceptor officers came onto the operational support group. So they had those, that sort of training, yeah. that experience, that knowledge, um, which was really good. You know, it, it was all shared knowledge. So I did that for a year. Um, and again, a few interesting deployments because you were the the public order um, officers for the Spearhead. force. Yeah. Yeah. So again, and going in there as a sergeant, it, it was a different dynamic that I had in the, the force support unit because I was then... Um, in charge, supervising a large team, um, and had responsibility for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was it was a it was a strange departure when they went down the OSG route, but I can see why they did it because it actually gave a, a, a mobile body of people to to step up and yes. do the the middle ground stuff, if you like. Yeah, not so, still strategic, but not as strategic. So you're there for one year. Yes. Yeah. It was. It was then I sort of again promotion was um, was rearing, you know. So I'm thinking. So we were in that sort of cadre of officers that you did your thirty years, yeah. um, and then you could retire um, on a full pension. I was then at twenty sort of twenty four, twenty five years, thinking, okay, what do I do now? And it, it was that I've done so many interesting things. It's now a case of working towards. A better retirement. Dash for cash. And it was, you know, there, there was an element of that to it, and, yeah. and rightly so, um, almost to ensure my family were, you know, were safe and yeah, absolutely, um, and looked after for for many years. So I, I decided to go down that route, and with the experience and knowledge and sort of that I'd, I'd sort of developed over the years, felt that you know that was a good route to go. And we did some great stuff together. I mean, we did. We had we had such a laugh, and we had a great command team as well. And we had license to, if we wanted to do a job, and we had the intelligence and the reason to do it, we'd do it. Yep. The undercover staff, you know, supporting the um, undercover teams, it was it was brilliant. And I couldn't I couldn't have done those jobs without you. And I will say that because we had such a laugh, and you guys did all the work. I just did all the. Talking and policy, <laughs> and, and bat, batting off the undercovers. But um, what was your best part of the your police? I mean, the support unit, I suppose, has got to be high up there. Yep. But is there any any other element that you think? Oh, actually, that was, or is that it? Is that? I suppose uh, I think a really um, good steer actually that you've you've just got, gone on to. I went, I became an inspector. Um, I finished my career on traffic um, over at Chigwell, uh, over on the motorway there. Um, interestingly, so traffic and force support units did not mix. So they were, <laughs> they were complete opposites. Yeah. You had a white cap on traffic. That was... Um, and nobody liked you. Nobody liked them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, an interesting dynamic, but I've got to be, you know, you, in answer to your question... What a professional bunch oh, yeah. of guys and girls who knew their job exceptionally well were very good at doing it. They were, you know, what I experienced on the force support unit. They were a, a team of people that um, 
bonded together, knew what they were doing. Their work ethic was amazing. You know, dealing with some really horrendous, horrendous mm. sort of um, operations as, as they were. Um, I become a, you know, we, we used to do the serious and and uh, and the deaths, fatal so, road so the stuff. fatal road collisions. So you can imagine what that must be like, you know. Um, and they're quite quite regular, you know. They're, they're yeah. not as they're not like a um, a shooting where they, they they will come once in a you know a blue moon from our point of view, but uh, they were regular. You and know, you did non call as a yes. as a as a, a road collision scene manager yes. and and how I mean look we've all seen dead bodies and I find it I do find it fascinating um, but if I attended a murder the person was already dead mm-hmm. you get called to a serious collision traffic get called to a serious collision that person could and hopefully is still alive and savable but there yes. are occasions when you get there and they pass away at the at the side of yeah. the road which is horrendous how, what impact did that have on you as a person? Seeing all this, attending serious road collisions, fatal—how did that affect you as a family man? Um, I'm not going to be blasé about it, but I didn't feel it overly impacted on me. Um, I'd been to so there's a there's a lot. As an inspector, you're you, you know you're expected to go out to any suicides, any yes. suspicious deaths. So, I'd already been going out to those um, for, for sort of many years. Um, some of the road collisions, obviously, there's an a, there's a different dynamic to them. Um, you know, it's not just the seriousness of them, but actually the the dynamics of the of the crash. Yeah, you know the impact that can have. So, from an inspector's point of view, you were there on the ground. You were managing the you know the resources that you had you were putting things in place to make sure that it was investigated properly um i never had then had to go <coughs> and deliver that message no to the families that that's probably the hardest part of that is actually um doing the knock on the door or the phone call you would you know you, you never wanted to do if if you could do it face to face um but you wanted to make sure you did that before it got out on social media. Yeah. Uh, that it got out on the the well, any any grapevine that w- that was out there. And it, it they tended to be really um, quite good at yeah. getting those sort of uh, things out. So you wanted to get there as quickly as possible. I never had to do that. I was the person that was delegating that to others. Um, but as the inspector, you also had the respons- the responsibility of of your officers' welfare. Yeah, absolutely. So the debriefs afterwards included. Um, what they call tra- uh, trauma risk incident management, so trim training, yep. um, which I did, uh, and that was as important, you know, to make sure that those officers were were debriefed well, that they were managing their own sort of emotional well-being, um, and that they were fit and well to do it again. Unfortunately, that, that, yeah. that's the reality, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and 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 that was that was us as well, you know, from from our perspective as well. And you're quite right, the the amount of jobs you get called to. As an inspector, suicide. If it then got ramped up, then I'd I'd end up going out. And I can vividly remember every single post mortem that I've been to. But it doesn't have an impact on me. I don't lay awake at night thinking no. about it. That doesn't mean I'm cold hearted. It just means that 
the professional element of what I did at that time, I just got on with because we we wanted, and I'm, I know you're the same, but we wanted to serve the victim, the deceased, as best as we possibly could to make sure that that justice was served, mm-hmm. if justice needed to be served. I mean, road collisions are a completely different kettle of fish because sometimes there's a lot of single vehicle collisions. There's, yep. there's not always a third-party involvement. But it is, I mean, mortuaries are depressing places, but it's fascinating. Fascinating. I was just going to say the same thing. The, the, the yep. pathologist, I, I mean, a doctor can ask you how you feel. Mm. A pathologist finds out what, Yes, what went on, and they are absolutely yep. incredible people. And as you say, whatever whatever the rub is between the CID and the traffic and FSU and the traffic, <laughs> their knowledge of legislation, dates, weights, and plates, they are just second to none because they have to know what they're doing at the side of the yeah. road. It's very dynamic. It's and quite proud. To, you know, yeah. the, the, there will be some of my friends, my colleagues, you know, looking back, um, would laugh at that. But actually, it was a really proud place. And, a, and a, to leave there, to retire from there, I think was certainly, I thought, the pinnacle of my career. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, from the point of view that I'd actually, I'd, I'd done a bit of everything at that point. Yeah. Um, and I'd left the police service on a high. I loved Every minute yes. of my job, I ne- you know, I, I never had any uh, regrets, any qualms. I would do it pretty much as I I did. I was very lucky, um, but to leave there in that respect, I, I was extremely lucky. But what advice would you give a twenty-year-old Kevin Gay joining today? It, the, the police is different to what we joined. It is massively. But what advice would you give to a twenty-year-old Kevin Gay? I think from that point of view is, you know, there's an element of enjoyment. You have to enjoy your work. Um, it's tough. It's probably tougher now than it ever was. Yeah. So if you can't enjoy it, it becomes a, you know, a burden. Um, try and get involved in as much as you can. You know, it's some of the point of, of it's who you know, not what you know. Oh, massively. There's some incredibly talented people out there. There's some, you know, that are very happy to, impart their knowledge and, and experience to you so seek those people out you know talk to people find out what's going on get your face seen in you know in all the places it's around dedication you know you mm. you, you do you have to dedicate yourself to that sort of job yeah you do you can't do it as a it's a it's a vocation yeah. it's you you're married to it i think if i was doing it again the only advice i'd give myself is get my exams earlier mm. because I found some of our colleagues inspirational in as much as if they could do it, then you and I should have yes. should have been an ACC or yeah. or a superintendent because they they weren't. I don't care actually. I don't care anymore. But they weren't better police officers than no. us. They were just more adept at, at knowing how to work the system to to yes. use their network yes. in order to get promoted. And that's not a jealousy thing. That's a real realism. You know, if yeah. I if I'd been a if I'd have done certain things, I'd have gone a certain way, and I may have got, but I didn't. I was a dyed-in-the-wall detective in the same way as you were mm-hmm. with the firearms, and we enjoyed those specialist roles. So, absolutely, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change the, the jobs that I'd no. done. I would just change the fact that I'd get promoted or or try and get promoted sooner. Right. So we've now retired. Yes. Kevin's out of the police yep. service. 
uh, you've got a lovely family. Mm-hmm. You've got son Callum. Yes. And a daughter Caitlin. That's right. Yeah. Okay, and your lovely wife, and you, you, you're now set, aren't you? Your life set. Mm-hmm. But actually, you've your life isn't completely set because Callum's got autism. Yes, he was diagnosed when he was five. Um, so while whilst I was in the obviously in the police, um, and there's an element of that obviously um, from my family's point of view. You know, that's my wife had to to deal with a lot of that. Um, I was at work, yeah. you know, the breadwinner, if you know, for coin of a coin of a phrase. Um, so she had to deal with a lot of those things. Um, so there was was an element of retirement on a decent pension. You know, give something back to the family, give time um, back to the family, because you know you are sort of ripped away at, at odd times, birthdays, Christmases, special occasions. Yeah. You know. Um, so it was a time to to do that. You're now Kevin Gay. You're no longer Inspector Gay, and your family are probably more dependent on you now than they were when you're in the police service. Albeit they're that much older, but mm. you've now got the time to deal with, yeah. deal and, and and be with them. And I and I I can feel your pain. You know, you become an errant father and husband at, at times because you're not there to support no. those family needs and be there for the special occasions. But Callum diagnosed at the age of five with autism. What impact did that have on you as a family? I suppose at the, t- at the time it was, um, it was it, it, clearly it was difficult. Um, Callum struggled. At nursery, so his claim to fame was he got excluded from nursery. So <laughs> at a very young age, we went to we was asked to come and pick him up, and we found him locked in one of the classrooms oh. on his own because they turned around and said we can't deal with him. Albeit they'd sort of um, convinced us that they could deal with special educational needs and all those yeah. you know all, all those things that come with it. Clearly they couldn't. Um, so emotionally, it's very hard um, as a family. Certainly with an autistic individual, you know, it's all about them. That is what it's about. You know, it, they're very sort of centred on them. So the family unit tended to split apart and not in a, in a, in a horrible way. So we'd go on to day trips and things. Um, one of us would go with Callum because he had a certain things he wanted to do. And then one of us would go with Caitlin. Right. So from that point of view, you know, we spent many days out on, in different places um, and one of us would sit with the ice cream van because Callum was fascinated with ice cream right. vans. So we'd sit with him and he would sit there for hours just sitting there and watching. Um, and then obviously, but Caitlin had her needs. Um, a, what we would call a neurotypical, you know, there was just, she didn't have any um, any issues, any challenges in that department. So... She, but she had needs, you know, she wanted to yeah. do things um, with her mum and dad, but that wasn't always possible. So, yeah, it was a, it's a balancing act. Yeah, massive balancing act. And I know, I mean, we've been mates for a long time, so I know that your life is dedicated to your family, mm. absolutely, you know, 100%. And the stresses and strains, and you have to plan for every eventuality we're talking to Emma who works with us in the office and her daughter's autistic mm-hmm. you know and she's and Emma won't mind me saying she's struggling at the moment yep. because and and you you've seen her pain today uh, because her daughter's six 
Yes. So she's going through the stuff that you were going through. And how old is Callum now? Callum now, he's 20, 21, 22 next month. Is he really? Wow. How time flies. Mm. You did a couple of jobs uh, whilst you were having retired. You did some gardening. You drove some Teslas, etc. But <laughs> you're now... What do you do now, Kev? What's your your main stock and trade? What do you, what's your what's your role? So in two thousand and nineteen, um, an opportunity came up to with, uh, as the manager um, of a charity that's over in the west of Essex called Pact for Autism. It's a charity that my wife, um, with a group of other, other mums, set up as a support group in. Um, when Callum was five, so we're, you know we're talking seventeen um, years. Yeah, two thousand and five, I think. Well, wow. they become a support group, um, and then two thousand and twelve became a charity, and sort of grew, developed. Um, they've got they had you know had four members of staff. My wife being one of them, she still works now. But in two thousand nineteen, the manager or the CEO of the charity decided to step down. So that place became vacant. Uh, my wife turned around and said, well, you're a manager. You've been a manager. You've been a supervisor. Um, why don't you do it? And I said, no, I don't want to. You know, it was managing my wife for a start. Um, and I'd been involved with the charity for many years as a trustee. Um, I'd been on the board. I'd been chair of the board. So, you know, I had a lot of understanding from that point of view. But nowhere near what I thought I would need you know, to manage the charity, as it were. But um, I think we was on holiday in Spain at the time, having a couple of drinks. Um, I just found out that the job I was doing at the time was coming to an end um, quicker than I expected. Quicker than um, I expected. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because you was involved in that as well. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly that ended very quickly. We was, you know, sitting having a drink, a glass of wine, and my wife then turned around again and said, well... Perhaps it's the time to, you know, decide whether you're going to do this or not. Um, and probably one of the best things I've ever done, decided that I would take on that role. What do you What do you bring to the table? I mean, this this podcast is about policing the transition. We do the same with the military. But what, what skills do you bring to the table? I, I can tell you, but it'd be interesting to see what your yeah. interpretation is. I mean, we always turned around and said, you know, what what do you do as a police officer when you come out, when, you know, when you you come into retirement? And there are so many um, sort of transportable skills that you've learned over the years that you can take in. So management and supervision was, was massive around that. Um, welfare, you know, having the welfare of your staff um, in mind is, is really key. But... I often have meetings um, with the staff now, um, our support, you know, leads are, that um, are in contact with families and individuals that um, are struggling. There's some safeguarding in relation to that as well. So some of the things that I bring from the policing arena around safeguarding, around even around investigations, you know, um, gathering evidence. Yeah. Um, all of those things are really key. You know, when you're going for an educational healthcare plan, you have to gather evidence to to make sure that that's, you know, that's effective. Um, when you're applying or, you know, going for a diagnosis even, you know, there's evidence that you have to supply. 
there's certain benefits you're entitled to. There's there's and these are the things that we support people with. So there's many things I think I brought brought from the police. You know, the safeguarding areas, um, being able to work under pressure. You know, those pressures of really quite substantial challenges. This is like for families, board, isn't it? It is a little bit, and I just wonder how I'd do again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, it was all those sort of things. But essentially, I brought some lived experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the decision-making, the ability to deal with issues as they arrive without getting into a complete flap, I think that yeah. that's where... You, let's take you back to a fatal road collision. You turn up there. You have to think really clearly under pressure mm-hmm. because if you go off on a tangent, then all of a sudden the investigation's lost. Your credibility as a yes. manager is lost because there isn't a constable or a sergeant or an inspector if you're a chief inspector that wants to see you tip up there and just get in a complete flat. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know people that do that. But I think that those decision makings and and the customer focus as well, which is a massive part yeah. of what you and I do, I think. But it's fascinating to hear hear what your take is. So, how far do you cover? What's your area? So we're we're based in the west of Essex. Our office is in Harlow. Okay. So we run quite a few activities, um, sort of soft play activities, where. We give um, certainly our younger um, children and their siblings a chance to have some soft play. In the, you know, it's privately sourced. Um, we've got gamers cage. We've got an art art empowerment for um, older females um, that are identifying as, as neurodivergent. Um, so lots of activities because we're quite a small charity. They're all very local. Okay. But we also run support lines and we run lots of things on social media, like information sharing, signposting. Uh, we do workshops. We co-produce workshops with, with other professionals. And we deliver those across the board. So when we turn around to people and say, look, register with Pack for Autism, you know, if you've got an interest in autism, it may well be that, you know, a family member, it may be you're working with someone who's autistic. Um, you're in education, you're in health. It doesn't matter what it is, it, you know. If you need that additional information and knowledge, register with us. You could be anywhere in the county, um, and there are things that we can help with. Um, local support groups, we, you know, we struggle with because that they're local. Yeah. So our families around west of Essex can, you know, we we can go to them locally. But um, you know, COVID taught us this. I, I took over the charity two thousand and nineteen. We all know what happened in 2020 in yeah. March. So six months later, I'm then in a position where I'm running a, a charity that predominantly um, lived face-to-face support, yep. um, doing activities face-to-face, and all of a sudden we were offline. So we just had to think really um, carefully um, and learn new skills and to take that out virtually, which we did. We did support groups virtually. We did workshops and all the things – Nothing really stopped. And it's interesting because we were talking earlier on before we came online. It's one of the few charities that supports children through to adulthood. Yes. 
And in, so there's a few local authorities, um, well, our local authority run an all-age autism um, group. So groups of professionals that look into, you know, all autistic support, um, ADHD, you know, any, any neurodivergent, um, they look at the support around that. So us as a charity, it was a, probably four years ago, um, we had adults coming to us saying, what about us? You know, late diagnosed adults, um, they're self-identifying, not being diagnosed, and they were quite happy with that. But they were turning around and going, you support children, you support families, what about us? And we'd transitioned with Callum and, the, uh, and a lot of our staff, we've all got lived experience, we've all got, yeah. or we all had children, uh, the autistic children, um, ADHD, lots of sensory needs. There was learning disabilities in there as well, so lots of sort of lived experience from that point of view. Um, those children, our children, transitioned into colleges. They then transitioned into adult services where, you know, Callum is now. And we had a whole host of new things to learn, understand, and actually get support with ourselves. So we've sort of transitioned now into that and just the understanding that there's another work, there's a whole new world out there um, away from education and away from children's mental health services, children's social care. There's a, it's very different, you know, in the adult world. And then late diagnosed um, autistic adults were coming to us and saying, um, we didn't know we was, you know, we was autistic when we was young. We struggled, you know, we were bullied. Um, we've got massive, massive mental health challenges. Um, and a lot of the challenges around mental health is the mental health interventions tend not to work very well with the autistic brain. Um, so there needs to be adapt, you know, the, the, the adaptation around that as well. Yeah. So there's work to be done around that. You know, there's work around employment, there's work around social care, health inequalities, um, benefit needs, a whole host of things that we've had to learn um, and sort of skill ourselves up about. If I was to direct this podcast to any particular area, where would you like this to go? What, what, what section of society or is it just a general, a broad brush? Wow, and I think it's a broad brush. You know, certainly the children, um, parents, uh, families, carers, you know, of young children, it's the education. You know, it's where they struggle in school. It's the what support needs they, they have there. Um, so it's very educationally based to a degree, some social care based as well. Um, but then when you get into young people, and into adulthood again it's more the social care and the more yeah. the benefit system but massively around workplaces we're getting lots of um reports around how you know autistics struggle in the workplace um around reasonable adjustments around those managers and supervisors understanding a different way of thinking and how they can adapt their work environment and their team to accept and acknowledge that there's someone that thinks differently. And yeah. that's pretty much all it is. Yeah. Um, and companies that have done that, workplaces that have done that, have seen the, ma the massive um, positives that that can bring. Yeah, absolutely. 
And some you... of them might only be very small changes, but it's just understanding that, that they need to be done. But that's all you need sometimes. And the other thing is because when we were kids, autism wasn't something that was diagnosed no. or recognised. They were just kids that were out mm-hmm. of control. Or And I interviewed Kirsty Last, whose um, podcast is the most recent one. And she is a lip speaker. And mm. so communication is everything because mm. when you, in our former lives, if we went and arrested somebody who's got autism, the way they respond to you walking through the door as you're carrying a gun, you want them to respond in a particular way. But their brains mm-hmm. aren't wired in that particular way sometimes Absolutely. and they don't understand why you're crashing through their door. Yes. So do you think... Oh, that's a close question. How do you think the authorities should deal with autism? When I say the authorities, I mean the law enforcement. Yes. How do you think that they should be dealing with autism? It's um, another level around criminal justice across the board. Uh, there's there's data coming out that there are, you know, within the criminal justice system, or in our prisons, in our mental health, you know, secure mental health facilities. Um, there are many, many undiagnosed autistics and neurodivergent. They, you know, they may have ADHD. There might be dyspraxia or dyslexia. There's Tourette's. Many, there's many, many things out there, uh, but they're undiagnosed. They're being dealt with and being secured under mental health, um, and none of that, you know, autism, ADHD, none of those are mental health conditions. Um, so it's really difficult. You know, yes, the police need to understand that people might not react in the way that you expect them to. Now, when I was in the police, we did training around that. You know, it wasn't autism training. It was just a, a case of you might find that person, if they do not react in the way that you expect them to, deal with it. You know, it, you might have to change how you speak to them. You may yeah. have to change... Um, the communication yeah. completely. Um, and that could be a, an array of things. English might not be their, their first language, so they won't react in the same way. They might be deaf. They might be blind. They might be so um, anxious that, that they just can't respond to you um, in the way that you expect them to. So it is a case of just adapting yeah, your absolutely. thought process. And we did train in many, many years ago. There's still a lot to be done. Yeah, Still and it, it's interesting because I've I've put Kirsty in touch with um, another police service because they've picked up on the podcast that went out. Okay, and who gives the instruction in the police? I mean, would you go in and certainly with their old force, would you go in and speak to people about how to deal with people with autism and I mean we, neurodiversity? We as a as a charity are very small. Yeah, very small. You know, we are five. Um, members of staff all work part-time right um and a lot of that is because of the dynamics of our families you know we are we parent carers yeah. as well so there's an element that, that you know with it's around capacity um i know autism anglia have done some work with essex police in the past um the national autistic society i think um you know they're there they good because they're national yeah you know them then coming into essex police but I think there's enough organisations there, ours included, that could engage into um, 
an educational program. Um, for you know, and then it's just a raising awareness. You don't need to know the ins and outs of every autistic no. know, profile. It's just a case of if they're not reacting the way you expect them to, change something. America are very good at this. You know, they're continually doing this training where uh, they might not, you know, that person might not react the way you expect them to. There's high pain thresholds, so they may not tell you that they've, you know, they've been hurt in some way. They will answer very logically, you know, so to a direct question of did you do this, they may turn around and say yes. Yeah, absolutely. But their perception of what you was asking is very different to what yeah. you were intending. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just, you know, it's those sort of things. It's some of the things that we talked about really early on about how you learn to communicate with the public is to a degree being lost because that connection to the public is being lost. We're doing more online, you know, um, we're doing um, more over the phone and things like that. So we are losing the ability to talk to, to the public. And I think that's, again, when, when you say about skills that we bring in, we can talk, as we're doing here, yeah, forever. Yeah, we can talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> and if we've got personal interest and passion around those, you know, Please don't stop us because we're going to carry on. I think that to a degree that's that's being lost. Yeah, I, I agree. The, but you know, that we could debate the closing mm-hmm. of the police stations at five o'clock in the evening, Monday to Friday, blah, blah, blah. There are a lot of uh, questions that are unanswered and I do feel for the modern police service, but some of it is their own making. Yes. Kev, before I conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add or to... No, certainly not alter. Um, I think add, you know, I think as we found with Emma this morning that, um, you know, if, if you've got a family member, if you've got someone that you're connected to in some way, it might be a friend. And there's some suspicion of autism or, you know, of neurodivergence, you know, which is, is all of those things around ADHD, um, Tourette's, um, and it could be... a an element of all of those things mixed in as well. There is help out there. There are people that you can talk to. Sometimes that's all you need is someone to offload on. Um, so reach out to them, you know, do some research, even over um, social media. There's some amazing groups out there. Pact for Autism is just one of them. Um, so reach out to them. There's so much they can they can do for you. There's lots of families out there with lived experience that can help, but you've got to be willing to to talk, to reach out, to listen, um, and to engage. Absolutely. Kev, um, love to Lisa. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant as ever to talk to you, and I wish you well. I will put all your links at the bottom of this Perfect. Um, podcast so that everything is there mm-hmm. we know that funding is a massive issue we'll get this circulated into the right areas and see if we can get you the support that you brilliant need and deserve thank you very much thanks Paul. mate loved it thanks mate